guys very much. Church family, welcome and good morning. And I want to say to everybody out there under the sound of my voice, and I hope this isn't the first time you've heard this, this time of year, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of y'all. Thanks again for being here with us this morning. We're continuing our series called Holiday Joy Every Day. And the Lord put it upon our hearts to really get into what makes the holiday joyful. And no doubt the reason for the season is our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? amen. Three of you are out there listening. I said, church family, the reason for the season is Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. All right. So in, in considering really how to have a good dialogue about joy during the holiday season and in scanning the scriptures, our minds and hearts were drawn to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is written by our good friend and teacher, the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. And this was a man who really knew what it was like to suffer. He was writing to the Corinthian church, and if I had to label that, those letters and the name of that church, it'd be something like letters to a church gone wild. In Corinth, there was a temple set up to the mythological deity Aphrodite. There were upwards of a thousand concubines and slave girls there with whom people from all over the world would come and visit and engage in sexually immoral practices. And there's some boasting going on and some idolatry going on. And the Apostle Paul admonishes the Corinthian church against this idolatry and bragging. I'll, I'll take your minds and hearts and eyes to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. The Bible says this. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. A little bit of a history lesson here. Forty lashes was a death sentence in Paul's day. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, and in danger from my fellow Jews. In danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked besides everything else. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I'd ask you to bear that in mind as I talk about the first verse of Philippians chapter 3 where Paul admonishes us to rejoice in our master. Let's open up and read Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says this, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard to you. Now, this is a man who's been persecuted. This is a man who's been beaten, who's been shipwrecked, who's been starved, experienced famine and persecution. And he shares right off in the third chapter of the book of Philippians with people he holds very dear to his heart the secret to his success. And it's his rejoicing in his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
If you've been studying the book of Philippians, your, your mind would easily be drawn back to chapter 1 and verse 1, where the Apostle Paul addresses his friends at Philippi as a servant. The Greek word he uses in Philippians 1.1 to indicate that he is a servant of God is the word doulos. And of the number of words in Greek that we could translate as servant, doulos is probably the worst. It's better translated slave. So Paul starts his letter to a church family that has supported him. Now, now let me mention something else, church. It's typical for Paul to have addressed the churches to whom he is writing based on his apostolic authority. Think Romans, think 1st and 2nd Corinthians, even in Galatians. I, Paul, what? An apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to his friends at this tiny church plant in Philippi, he addresses them as a slave, doulos, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think initially he shares with them one of the most vital and important components of his ability to find joy and to rejoice in the same types of scenarios I read to you from 2 Corinthians 11. He understands to whom he is enslaved. Let's do a, let's do a, a mental exercise this morning, shall we? Oh, come on, don't sound so enthusiastic. <laughs> I want you to draw to mind, I want you to bring to your mind your biggest problem. I want you to call to your memory your biggest problem, that thing that if you could walk from this building today and it would resolve itself, that it would dramatically reduce your anxiety, your stress, your fear, your concern, and your worry. Now I want you to visualize yourself being enslaved to Jesus Christ. And in that mental image that you're painting of yourself being enslaved to Jesus Christ, I want you to credit to Christ the ability to help you completely overcome and resolve whatever it is that that particular problem might be. I'm reminded not only of the faith of the Apostle Paul right here in Philippians 3.1, my mind is drawn to the faith of Abraham. Abraham is asked by God in the book of Genesis to sacrifice his son Isaac, the son of promise, the son Abraham never thought he would have. And we see later the insight into Abraham's mind as written in the book of Hebrews, where it's accredited that Abraham actually believed that if he put his son Isaac to death, God would resurrect him and carry out the promise that he made to Abraham. And so I have to imagine that it, was, it is with a similar faith that the Apostle Paul endures whatever hardships he must face in this life for the cause of Christ, knowing that whatever should happen, should he find himself persecuted, beaten, tortured, in prison or in famine, that somehow his master, to whom he was enslaved, his Lord Jesus Christ, was going to see him through, even if his intellect could not figure out how it would be possible that God would resolve whatever particular situation he found himself in at any given time. Further rejoice in the Lord, he tells his dear friends in Philippi. And this echoes the sentiment of our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 16, verse 33. Let me read to you the words of our Lord. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Two definites here. First, in this life, church family... 
You are going to experience trouble and tribulation. Guaranteed. But there's a second reality present here that the Apostle Paul is very familiar with, and that's the lordship and sovereignty of Jesus Christ to see you through whatever tribulation and trouble may plague you in this life. This is no doubt what prompts the Lord Jesus Christ to say, be of good cheer. Whatever it is you find yourself going through or being subjected to, be of good cheer. Even if your rational human mind can't make sense or figure out how it would be possible to overcome whatever it is you're going through, be of good cheer. Paul would say, rejoice because you've enslaved yourself to a master who is much bigger and more capable and more powerful than any problem you can ever come up with in this life. Be mindful of that, he tells his friends. What does he go on to say? He goes on to talk about joy in your materials. Let's pick up the story in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 2. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, listen to some of the most beautiful words ever recorded in the history of mankind. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Have you ever had a prized possession? Has there been one thing in life that you've really, really valued? Well, I have, I, in my life, have not had a whole lot that somebody would really consider valuable. So I asked my partner in crime in sermon preparation, my beautiful wife, Kirsten, let me just say, if you haven't met her, she is way out of my league, right? And the best stuff I do and say is probably attributable to her and the Holy Spirit for certain, okay? All right, one person's met her and understands that reality. So I text my beautiful bride, and I'm like, babe, have you ever lost something that was really valuable to you? And she kind of like rolls her eyes, and she's like, well, yeah. Like, I should know what she's talking about. This is the first time in my life I've ever, you know, made the mistake of not knowing what she's talking about. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and I was like, well, what is it? And she was like, well, you lost it. And then the burden of shame started to increase on my back. And I, I felt hot and flushed. And I said, well, what, what happened, babe? Like, what did I lose? Well, let me tell you the story. This is kind of a sad story. My wife's mom's mother passed away before her time as a result of a, an accident. But before she passed away, my wife, my wife's mom, and my wife's grandmother, my wife's mom's mom, all purchased matching 
diamond rings that they could wear which would remind them of one another just as they're living life and and when my wife's grandmother passed she was put to rest with that ring on her finger and so I'm I'm dating Kirsten and I at some point must have asked you know can I wear the ring that's this big-time sentimentally valuable ring and you know she says sure and she was so crazy about me at that moment in time, I'm sure it wasn't even a second thought that I would make sure nothing happened to that ring. And so I'm at the gym one day, it's actually an MMA fighting gym, this is a place where I went to work out my insecurities. It didn't work, so I used Jesus Christ, which did. But I finished training at the gym and I go home and I'm washing my hands and all of a sudden a wave of horror just kind of washed over my body. And I kind of got weak in the knees. Those of you that have been in this moment will really understand what I'm, what I'm talking about. As I realized the ring had fallen from my finger and was somewhere in the vast recesses of this gym that I was at earlier that day. And so the human side of Trent and the spiritual side of Trent at that moment started to engage in combat. It's like... No, don't tell her. Maybe she'll forget. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. And I'm like, no, it's the good and right and Christian thing to do to be candid. The truth will set you free. I've got to tell her. This lasts for a few minutes. She walks in. I disclose. She's like, oh, no, you didn't. And I was like, yeah, I did. So we go to the gym. Now, some of you know I have a germ phobia. We go to the gym. And I've, I've often done my own therapy work and tried to figure out where the germ phobia originated. I think it was this experience. We go back to the gym and I sift through every trash bin uh, in the whole facility and the humanity that exists in trash bins in gyms across the United States it is unimaginable. You can't even comprehend what I found. We also opened the, the uh, vacuum bag that the staff vacuumed the whole gym with that evening and between toenails, seriously, and band-aids and body hair, we didn't find the ring. And so this illustrates uh, pretty profoundly the reality that the Apostle Paul is trying to call to our minds here in Philippians 3. That things which are material and of this world are subject to being lost, damaged, or destroyed. But the reality of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord and letting him lead you through and overcome the trials of, and, and tribulations of this life is truly greater, greater than any possession you could acquire. And the Apostle Paul is speaking from his experience. He's saying, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As far as righteousness in accordance with the law, I was faultless. If anyone had a reason to boast or to take pride in worldly possessions and to want to hold on to those things, it was the young, religious, social, political superstar, Paul or Saul of Tarsus, who trained in the best schools, went to the hippest parties, and knew all the right people in his heyday. And he's sitting in a Roman prison, virtually alone and without any support and he says hey if I could do it all over again I'd still count all of that stuff as trash compared to the greatness of knowing my Lord and my Savior Jesus Christ I think that's one thing that can make the Christmas season so stressful is the degree to which our attention is distracted from the true reason for the season which is Jesus 
and instead get way caught up in the materialism of Black Friday or Cyber Monday or who's getting what from whom and what parties are we going to and when and are we going to see the in-laws, are we going to see the outlaws? And I think the Apostle Paul's admonishment to the Philippian church at this day and time is his same for us. Don't forget the reason for the season is Jesus, not the materialistic things that we've made the season about. What would he say about having joy in your materials then? That's kind of tongue-in-cheek. He'd say, don't, don't find any joy in them whatsoever and find joy in Jesus. Let's keep reading Philippians 3, starting in verse 10. I'm going to read through verse 14. The Apostle Paul says this, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in its sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Have you ever been accused of having a selective memory? It's time for some honest confession here, church. I want to see a show of hands. Men, let's just get real honest here, all right? Have you ever been accused of having a selective memory, okay? God bless y'all. Thank you for your confession. May the Lord forgive you, all right? But, but I, wanna, I just want to give you guys some ammunition the next time you're accused of having a selective memory. I think what the Apostle Paul is saying here is, ladies and gentlemen, give yourself permission to forget the bad and remember the good. In other words, he's telling his friends at Philippi, look, I could go back over every moment in time that I've been beaten or stoned or shipwrecked or in the middle of a famine or even now I'm in prison and I could compare that with the prestige and glamour and recognition that I gained as a faultless Pharisee studying under the, the, the Harvard quality professors of my day and I could, I could feel despair and discouragement and defeat as a result of what seems like worldly loss or instead I can remember the reality of that old life I had before I was a Christian when I persecuted the church and put Christians in prison or even contributed to their death. And, and I feel the burden of that shame and the weight of that sin. And then I choose to forget all that's behind. And I choose to focus on what's ahead of me, which is the cross. I want, I want to tell you something this morning, church, that I hope you'll do for the rest of this holiday season and even all throughout the new year. Here it is. Give yourself permission to forget what God has forgiven. Would you do that for me? Give yourself permission to forget what God has forgiven. I think the enemy is working on the Apostle Paul. He's got two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus, maybe a third guy, whatever the uh, name of the particular jailer is outside of his cell, which was maybe like a glorified apartment. And I think he's fighting this battle. Man, I was a sinner. The good things I wanted to do and I tried to do, I know I didn't do them. And even now, 
And I get the in, I, my vision is, and I can't prove that, that the enemy is just working on him to bring his mind back to his failures and his faults and his fears and not on his forgiveness. And I think he's saying, this is the way I maintain the ability to rejoice in the Lord. I forget those things which are behind. And I press forward toward the mark that Jesus has called me to, that heavenward holy place that I'll one day experience in the next life. And this really is what the Christmas season is all about. This is why we can have hope and joy regardless of circumstance. Because God gave us the gift of his son that becomes that future hope-forward reality that allows us for, to forget about our sin-sick, miserable past. I want to read to you a story that reminds me of this great sacrifice God sent to us in the form of his son in Bethlehem. This is a true story, researched it as much as I could, everything I found validates its truth. I'm going to read to you the copy that I found on the Christian Research Institute's website. It's about a man named John Griffith, I'll pick up the story right there. John Griffith was in his early 20s, he was newly married and full of optimism. Along with his lovely wife, he had been blessed with a beautiful baby. He was living the American dream, but then came 1929, the great stock market crash the shattering of the American economy that devastated John's dreams. The winds that howled through Oklahoma were strangely symbolic of the gale force wind that was sweeping away his hopes and dreams. And so brokenhearted, John packed up his few possessions and with his wife and his little son headed east in an old Model A Ford. They made their way to the edge of the mighty Mississippi River and found a job tending one of the great railroad bridges there. Day after day, John would sit in the control room and direct the enormous gears of the immense bridge over the mighty river. He would look out wistfully as bulky barges and splendid ships glided gracefully under his elevated bridge. Each day, he looked on sadly as those ships carried with them his shattered dreams and his vision of far-off places and exotic destinations. It wasn't until 1937 that a new dream began to be birthed in John's heart. His young son was now eight years old, and John had begun to catch a vision for a new life, a life in which Greg, his little son, would work shoulder to shoulder with him. The first day of his new life dawned and brought with it new hope and fresh purpose. Excitedly, they packed their lunches and headed off toward the immense bridge. Greg looked on in wide-eyed amazement as his dad pressed down the huge lever that raised and lowered the vast bridge. As he watched, he thought that his father must surely be the greatest man alive. He marveled that his dad could single-handedly control the movements of such a stupendous structure. Before they knew it, noontime had arrived. John had just elevated the bridge and allowed some scheduled ships to pass through. And then taking his son by the hand, they headed off toward lunch. As they ate, John told his son in vivid detail stories about the marvelous destinations of the ships that glided below them. Enveloped in a world of thought, he related story after story, his son literally hanging on his every word. Then suddenly, of telling, suddenly in the midst of telling a tale about the time that the river had overflowed its banks... He and his son were startled back to reality by the shrieking whistle of a distant train. Looking at his watch in disbelief, John saw that it was already 
Immediately he remembered that the bridge was still raised and that the Memphis Express would be by in just minutes. In the calmest tone he could muster, he instructed his son, stay put. Quickly he leapt to his feet, jumped onto the catwalk. As precious seconds flew by, he ran full tilt to the steer ladder leading into the control house. Once in, he searched the river to make sure that no ships were in sight. And then, as he had been trained to do, he looked straight down beneath the bridge to make certain nothing was below. As his eyes moved downward, he saw something so horrifying that his heart froze in his chest. For there below him in the massive gearbox that housed the colossal gears that moved the gigantic bridge was his beloved son. Apparently Greg had tried to follow his dad but had fallen off the catwalk. Even now he was wedged between the teeth of two main cogs in the gearbox. Although he appeared to be conscious, John could see that his son's leg had already begun to bleed. Then an even more horrifying thought flashed through his mind. Lowering the bridge would mean killing the apple of his eye. Panicked, his mind probed in every direction, frantically searching for solutions. He thought of grabbing a coiled rope, climbing down the ladder, running down the catwalk, securing the rope, sliding down towards his son and pulling him back to safety. Then in an instant, he would move back down towards the control lever and thrust it down just in time for the oncoming train. As soon as these thoughts appeared, he realized the futility of his plan. Instantly, he knew there just wouldn't be enough time. Frustration began to beat on John's brow, terror written over every inch of his face. His mind darted here and there, vainly searching for yet another solution. His agonized mind considered the hundreds of people that were moving inextricably closer and closer to the bridge. Soon the train would come roaring out of the trees with tremendous speed. But this was his son, his only son, his pride, his joy. He knew in a moment there was only one thing he could do. He knew he would have to do it. And so burying his face under his left arm, he plunged down the lever. The cries of his precious son were quickly drowned out by the relentless sound of the bridge as it ground slowly into position. With only seconds to spare, the Memphis Express roared out of the trees and across the mighty bridge. John Griffith lifted his tear-stained face and looked into the windows of the passing train. A businessman was reading the morning newspaper. An uninformed conductor was glancing nonchalantly at his large vest pocket watch. Ladies were already sipping their afternoon tea in the dining cars. A small boy looked strangely like his own son as he pushed a long thin spoon into a large dish of ice cream. Many of the passengers seemed to be engaged in idle conversation or careless laughter. No one even looked his way. No one even cast a glance at the giant gearbox that housed the mangled remains of his hopes and dreams. In ang anguish, he pounded the glass in the control room. He cried out, what's the matter with you people? Don't you know? Don't you care? Don't you know I've sacrificed my son for you? What's wrong with you? No one answered and no one heard. No one even looked. Not one of them seemed to care. And then as suddenly as it had happened, it was over. The train disappeared, moving rapidly across the bridge and out over the horizon. 
Church family, this is, what a, this is a faint glimpse of what the Father did in sending His Son to us in Bethlehem. The difference here, though, is that Jesus was not accidentally caught as John's son was. Rather, He was willingly sacrificed for the sins of mankind. And of course, for Jesus, the story doesn't end there. Three days later, Jesus arose from the grave. For this reason, we celebrate the birth, life, and death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The metaphor here needs not be explained any further. But the reality is that Paul truly grasped the reality of the sacrifice Jesus made for us in taking on the form of a little baby in a manger those many years ago. Yes, Paul knew the sacrifice of Jesus, and it is no doubt this. He calls to his memory, above all else, forgetting the things that are behind and looking ahead to Jesus, truly the greatest gift of all. It's our Lord Jesus Christ, church family, that's the reason for the season. I'm going to conclude, and I hope if there's a need in your life and you'd like us to pray for you, that you'd bring that forward today. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, we love you, and there are no words that would accurately express how thankful we are for the greatest gift, gift ever given, the first ever Christmas. And that was the gift of your precious, perfect Son, who lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life, yet became sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We ask that this Christmas season you would help our minds be stayed on that, the highest and most important truth of all. In Jesus' precious name I pray.